Bibles with me to James chapter 1, verse 12. James 1, verses 12 through 18 is what we'll be reading this morning. Before we do, let me, uh, let me pray for us one more time before we read. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our paths. Without it, we are lost. We have no true knowledge. We don't know you. And yet with it and through it, we do know you. We know your salvation. We know Jesus Christ. And we gain all kinds of wisdom from it. So we pray that this morning as we come to you again, that you would uh, illuminate this text for us, as you have so many times. We pray that your spirit would be moving in each one of our hearts and in this body as a whole uh, to hear and to understand and receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the most uh, influential pieces of advice and strategies in the history of war came about 2,500 years ago, and uh, I'm I'm sure this has probably come up in a sermon before, even by me, I'm not sure, Uh, but uh, that influential piece of advice was, know the enemy. So that was written almost 2,500 years ago by a Chinese military strategist in his famous book called The Art of War. Uh, The full quote in that section actually goes, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So know the enemy, of course, that means you have to be able to uh, adapt your approach to a war based on the enemy. You can't just go into every single fight the same way. Uh, You have to know what the enemy's strengths and weaknesses are. You have to know what your own strengths and weaknesses are. Of course, this applies to far more than just war. It's been applied to to business and and sports and politics and, and really everything under the sun. So the right knowledge and the right mental preparation beforehand, it makes all the difference. You can even uh, win the war before it's even fought. You give yourself a huge advantage if you know the enemy and know yourself. Now, as we come to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, a lot of that, the same principles apply. Uh, As we read verses 12 through 18, there are a lot of the same themes that we saw in the first part of James, verses 1 through 11, but there's a little bit of a difference here. So, so in verses 1 through 11, we saw a lot of, uh, we saw more of the, the external trials, the outward circumstances that we go through. Uh, you could say it's the, the actual war being fought. But now, as we come to verse 12, James actually starts to take a look inward. So he starts describing sort of the, the internal battleground of your heart and the the mental preparation that you need to have ahead of time. And so, uh, again, to tie it back earlier to verses 2 through 4, James James wants us to be able to count all of our trials as joy. 
He wants us to grow. He wants us to be sanctified. But it doesn't happen automatically. Just because you go through a trial doesn't mean you'll be more holy at the end of it. Doesn't mean you'll give glory to God through it. So this text today is sort of the flip side of the coin. It's an analysis, you could say, of, of how it's possible to not grow in your trials. And how trials can sometimes end up leading you away from Christ rather than toward him. So, much like that book, The Art of War, James wants us to equip our minds before the trials come so we're ready for the fight. So he gives us really three pieces of the game plan to win the war against temptation. Uh, Those three pieces of the game plan are know your reward, know your enemy, and know your God. Those are the three ways we're going to look at this text. Let's read verses 12 through 18 of James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. God, I just blessing to the reading of his word. So, three pieces of the game plan to win the war against trial and temptation. First is to know your reward. Comes in verse 12, that verse alone, right there. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, th- this, is, this verse right here is, is very similar to verses 2 through 4 earlier. It's the same sort of pattern here. So through trials, see a lot of the same exact words too, through trials, God is testing believers. And again, like we said last time, it's not testing to see if they have the faith, but it's testing to refine faith that's already there, a faith that already exists. Uh, And on the other side of that trial or test from God is some sort of outcome that he's looking for. So earlier in verses 2 through 4, he's looking for sanctification. The end of the trial is holiness, growth, maturity. But verse 12, there's a different sort of outcome. Now the outcome is what James says, the crown of life. Blessed is the one who, who stands firm through the trial. For after he has been tested, he receives the crown of life. So James here As he's describing the trials that we go through, at the same time, he's sort of holding out this crown. He's holding out a reward, and he's saying, this is what you get if you get all the way through it. This this crown of life that he holds out, you you have to kind of think less gold and jewels and the pointy sort of metal crown that you wear like a king. Uh, He's thinking more along the lines of... I don't know if we actually do this anymore, 
but this sort of crown that's uh, woven branches and leaves and flowers. It's what you put on uh, uh, an athlete after he's won something or, or won the race or finished the race or something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit something like the, 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 the bed of roses that you put on the Kentucky Derby winner, maybe. Something more like that. Less royalty, more victory, really just less crown, maybe more like a medal or a trophy. And it's a crown of life, which means there's not, it's not a, a physical crown that he's thinking of, but the crown itself is eternal life. It's what God bestows upon you if you make it through the trials and are steadfast through those things. He bestows you with eternal life. So God promises a reward and a trophy for those who love him and remain steadfast through their life full of trials. And the reward is meant to motivate us. It's meant to spur us on. And I wonder if maybe that sounds a little unspiritual to you. Because I think, even for myself sometimes, uh, the thought that I get something at the end of my life Maybe, I don't know, it sounds a little selfish, uh, even maybe like opportunistic, a little crass maybe. It's, it's easy to kind of think that way. Well, it's, it's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about God. Everything is supposed to be about God and his glory. I can't think about what I get out of this. And yet, the New Testament is, is full of reminders of our reward. It's full of reminders about what we get at the end of this life. It's full of reminders that are supposed to sort of provoke us to obedience and faithfulness. And especially, actually, if you were to kind of look through the New Testament and see all the different times that it reminds us of our reward and eternal life, it tends to come when the author is talking about trials. So, for instance, in Revelation 2, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear. The devil is going to throw some of you in prison, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Or then again, actually, to another church later in Revelation 3, to the church of Philadelphia, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God. Philippians chapter 3, one of the most, most well-known verses about, about sanctification and, and moving forward and running the race. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then another great one is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. There's something about meditating on eternal life that, that's supposed to provoke us to be faithful to God when life gets hard. It is good to meditate on the life we're going to have and the reward we get. Uh, now, it's December 31st today, which means, of course, that all of you have just finished up your, your Bible reading plans for the year, I'm assuming, Right? Um, of course, you still have the rest of the day today if you need to get through it. It's okay. Um, so it means we've all read, of course, Revelation 21 and 22 probably in the last couple of days. The very last chapters in the Bible. I'm kidding, of course. 
maybe didn't get through the whole Bible this year. That's okay. Revelation 21, as John is looking at the very end of history and the new heavens and the new earth, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That's, I mean, that's the crown that James is holding out for you right now. That's the crown that he says you're going to get at the end of all of these trials, all of this difficulty, all of this hardship. I mean, how can you not read something like that and just be, be sort of buoyed up for the race, the rest of life? It's a good thing. Now, you, you can't miss this either about verse 12. It's the end of the race that determines the reward, not just the beginning. We have to run the whole race to get this crown. Right? It's, a, it's a marathon. So just like if you're running a, a real marathon, a physical marathon, you can't just sort of stop at mile 15 and say, boy, that, that was a record pace I just set there. I think I can take a break, and I think, uh, I think the timekeepers will, uh, will uh, go ahead and just give me that full marathon. I think that'll count, right? I can put the, put the sticker on my car now, 26.2. No, no. You have to run the whole race if you want to finish the marathon, if you want to get the prize, just like you have to, you have to finish the Christian life of faithfulness in order to get the crown of life. And so all throughout the race... You have to keep running, keep staying faithful, because God keeps sending those trials. He keeps testing you. And it's almost as if all throughout the different phases of your life and the phases of the race, these these trials are sort of touch points where God touches base with you and says, do you love me still? Are you still racing? Where's your heart at now? Okay, I know 20 years ago you were running well. I know 20 years ago you loved me wholeheartedly. But, but where are you at now? Is your heart still mine? Do you still want the real reward? Have you gotten distracted with some of these other things yet? I want you to still love me. I just want to keep our eyes fixed on the end of the race and the crown that we get, the reward of eternal life. And it equips us for the race ahead. So, that's number one, to know your reward to get through trials. Number two is to know your enemy. So, verses 13 through 15, if you have your Bibles open. Now, verse 13 is interesting because verse 13, James actually starts to make a shift. So, so far he's been talking about trials and tests. Now we start hearing about something different. We have another, another T word here in my Bible, tempted temptations. Now, the the tricky part here is, as you're reading through James 1, when you come across the word trial, and when you come across the word temptation, it's actually the same exact Greek word. That same Greek word can mean either trial or temptation, depending on the context. It's the same word, but it's a very, very different concept. So some tests that we go through as Christians are external, 
their hardships, their difficulties. For instance, like, like losing a job. It's a trial you go through. Something that, that's morally neutral. There's nothing inherently evil about you losing your job, right? But there are, there are some tests that come from, from within ourselves. Temptations. This is sort of the, the internal enticement to sin. Like greed or covetousness when you lose your job. But those are morally illicit desires. Both of them are considered tests, but, but, but one of these tests, God sends a lot. And apparently, according to James, one of these tests, God cannot possibly give to you. It's impossible for God himself to do. And now, when we get to verses 13 through 15... James is talking about the the internal temptations that come from your own desire. Um, So verse verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And what James is talking about here is what we call in, in, in the reform circles as original corruption. That's the way the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 6 puts it, original corruption for for as part of human nature. Westminster Confession of Faith says that we are utterly indisposed and disabled and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. So, in other words, we're, we're born corrupted. Uh, we're born not good and then corrupted later, but our human nature from the start is defiled. And so this is like what Jeremiah says in his prophecy, Jeremiah 17:9, that very well-known verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or, or again, in, in Psalm 51, another well-known verse, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And from this corrupted nature, the Westminster goes on to explain, proceeds all of our actual transgressions. Now, the way you can put that is we sin because we're sinners. It's not the other way around. We're not called sinners because we sin. Sin comes out of us because there is sin in us. And both the original corruption and the actual sins make us guilty before God. Both of them make us deserving of the curse and punishments. So you, you can kind of think about it like this. So imagine, I don't know if this is how cups are made, but if you imagine you have a mold for a cup, and the plastic gets poured in, and cups come out of that mold, imagine that mold gets broken. And so now every single cup that gets made from that mold is damaged, it leaves cracks, um, And if you were to pour water into it, water would just come right out of it. You can't hold water in there anymore. Now, the the manufacturer of that cup doesn't wait for a cup to leak water before it pulls it off the shelf, right? It doesn't wait to pull it off the conveyor belt until after it gets used and proves itself broken. No, the the cup is worthless because it's, it's been made broken. From the very beginning, it it gets trashed from the moment it's made. There's something wrong with the mold itself. That's a little bit what, like James is saying, is 
this sin that's in us, the desire that is in us is broken already. And you might say, that's all well and good, but I'm a Christian, I'm saved. I don't have that anymore. Well, don't forget, James here is talking to Christians, and he's talking about Christians. And so even when, when we're saved, even when we're born again, even when we're, we're regenerated, that, that corruption still sort of remains in us. Even though we can be forgiven of it, even though that sin can be begun to die and it can start to be uprooted, that corruption of our natures is still always there. And this is what we call indwelling sin. It's the fact that the, the infestation of sin is not yet totally eradicated in us, even when you're saved. This is why we spend so much time talking about sin. I don't know if you noticed, but, but in our church, we talk a lot about sin. Uh, it's because sin can still do this James 1, 14 and 15 to you. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Verse 14 is actually, verse 14 is actually, James is describing fishing. We get lured and enticed by our own sin, by, by our own desire. Our desire almost, it, it sets the bait on the hook, and then when we pounce on it, it drags us away. Right? That's true even for Christians. There, there, there's, almost for, there's forever going to be a piece in us that, that's crooked. Uh, we're never going to be able to do good perfectly. We're never going to be able to do only good. There's always going to be that piece of our heart, that, that, that little voice that sort of follows us around and flares up. That's what James is talking about here. That, that, that our own desires are always tempting us to sin. So, as a, as a side note, if you grew up Roman Catholic, this is very, very different than what you were taught growing up. Um, the Roman Catholics teach that, that we have disordered desires, but they're not actually sin until there's a consenting act of the will, uh, that, that, that's not what the Reformed teaching teaches. Now, also sort of as another side note, here, here's one area where this has been very, very helpful for our denomination, and it should be very, very helpful for every single one of us. Uh, these verses have been used a lot lately um, by pastors and by theologians to help us understand sexual sin, and especially homosexuality in people and in Christians. So these verses help us to understand that, that it's not just the actions that are sin and condemn us, but, but even the very experience of same-sex attraction is considered sinful because it's a desire for something against the Bible and against God's nature. Even, you can say, even though it's completely unwanted, even though it feels like it's beyond my power to control, even if it feels like I'm just born this way and I feel like I can't help it, God still considers that sin and guilt. And yet, here's another way this is helpful, that's no different than any other sin. All of us are born with the same original corruption. We're all born with sinful desires 
that it feels like we can't control. We're all born with a sort of, this sort of sinful inclinations that we don't want or that we shouldn't want. And all of these sins together are sins that we can repent of, we can be justified from, we can still be adopted into God's family, and we can still be free from the condemnation of them. So Roman, Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation should ring just so sweetly now. We have to understand the depth of our sin if we really want to understand the sweetness of the gospel. We have to understand that we're not just saved from our sins that we sort of occasionally commit out here, and some days we're actually good, but other days we're bad. No, we have to understand that our sin gets us to the deepest core of who we are, and we're always going to be crooked. We're always going to be bent. Which is why the fact that there is no condemnation is so praiseworthy of God. That's why we sing. That's why we give Him glory. Because we know the depths to which we've sunk and the heights to which God has pulled us. He loves us so much. So, so, so really the upshot of all of this, the, the reason that James goes into this detail is really to say when you are tempted and when you are going through trials, God is not your enemy. God is not the enemy that you have to fight. He gives trials, he sends trials to strengthen our faith, to fit us for heaven. What you really need to do is watch out for your own temptation in the midst of trials. That's your, real, that's your real enemy. Your real enemy is your own heart. So, for instance, when we read Job chapter 1 earlier, God sends all of the, these, these just horrific external trials to Job. In, in, in all of that, Job, Job admitted it at the end of chapter 1, right? And he does so again at the end of chapter 2. God is not the enemy. He can give and he can take away, but still blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Job was was fighting against that temptation in his own heart to to curse God and die. Now, I kind of failed to mention that There's also temptation that can come from outside of us. Temptation doesn't just come from within us. Temptation can come from outside, just like actually in Job 2, Job's wife comes and says, you should curse God and die. That's also a temptation, but that's not exactly what James has in mind here. Again, he's thinking of the temptation that comes from within us. Unfortunately, it's sad to say, you are your own worst enemy. So actually, I think John Owen puts this really helpfully, if you're still sort of on the fence about this. John Owen says that it's our, our own hearts that propose to us that which is evil. The idea to sin begins within yourself. And so every trial that we go through requires a decision. Will we stay faithful to God? Or will we defect? And go to the enemy. 
when you lose your job, do you start to question that God can provide for you? When there, there's an unexpected death in your family or of a loved one, do you start to, to doubt God's love? Do you think he can't possibly love me if he makes this to happen? Or when you see that the righteous, the righteous Christians suffer here and around the world, do you start to think, is God really just? I don't believe that. You see, every trial brings with it some sort of temptation. Will we stay faithful to God or will we defect? Now, when we're talking about trials from God, those are things to be endured. But when we're talking about temptations, temptations are something to flee. We're meant to learn from trials, endure them, grow in the midst of them, but temptations are something to run away from as fast as we can. Sin is, is, is not a laughing matter. Sin is very alluring and seductive to us. You think of all the, the typical sins that can arise within our own heart, whether it's laziness or, or gluttony or alcohol or anger or lust. Don't those things just always, they, they seem so attractive in the moment? It's your heart lying to you. It's your heart lying to you that those things are good. We have to understand our own hearts. We have to understand the strategies that our own desire employs, the lies that it tells us, the way that it makes sin seem attractive, and we cannot take sin lightly. We have to resist at all times, and especially resist in our thoughts, in our minds. We, we, you know, we can't choose to sort of indulge today, but, but tomorrow I promise I'm going to fight really hard, and, and next time I'll win the battle. You can't indulge today and fight tomorrow. You have to fight right now. You have to fight today. Tell yourself you shouldn't be thinking and feeling this way. Turn your thoughts and desires to something else. Um, you can't give sin a foothold. All right, so another, I think, really helpful analogy I read was sin may be in the car with you your whole life. Do not let it take hold of the steering wheel. Because once you do, it's like water that flows downhill. There's sort of a, there's an inevitability about it. It's going to lead to more and lead to more. The second that we entertain the desire, we've let it in. And it wants to lead us to death. So we fight every moment, every day. Um, but also I think there's a little bit of an encouragement here. Uh, I, I know that's, that's, it's hard to be told that you are a sinner to the very depths of, your, depths of your core. But even though we're sinners to the depths of our core, there is a really big difference between being tempted in your heart and giving into the sin completely. Right? So there's, there, there's a huge difference between lusting after a man or a woman and being a serial adulterer. I think we all understand that. Right? They're both sin. We should feel those temptations sort of weaken over time in our hearts, and yet we should feel the, the greatest sort of responsibility for not giving in. So here's, here's something I found incredibly helpful. I, a quote from one commentator named Doug Moo. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, 
but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. And that is to say, listen, it's really easy to crush ourselves, isn't it? To crush ourselves with the weight of our guilt, to just hate ourselves every single day and every single time that sin comes. That's easy. But we should be encouraged that that even if those temptations still rise up in our hearts, we can still be just miles ahead of where we once were. And that's a good thing. Focus your energy on not giving in. We don't need to to crush ourselves when we see that sin still linger in our hearts. Even if you've been fighting temptation for, for many, many years, you say, why do I still have this? Why do I still feel this way? Why do I still struggle with the same things? Well, we can, we can fight. We should fight where the greatest responsibility is, and that is in not giving in, not succumbing. Uh, and so that actually leads us really well to our third, our third and final point, to know our God when we go through the trials and temptations. God is not your enemy, but in fact, he is, he is far more than that. God is your ally. So verses 17 and 18, James packs a lot in here, and you could make several sermons out of just these two verses, but just notice them really quickly, everything that James says about God. God is the giver of good things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is a powerful and providential God. He is goodness personified. There's nothing that God gives you that is not good. And on the flip side of that, there's nothing good that you have that hasn't come from God. Everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, and everything that is excellent are gifts from God. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. He is a good kind of God. He's not a tricking kind of God. He's not trying to get you to stumble. He's good. And on top of that, James adds that God does not change. He says, the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. This is, this is all sort of um, astronomical language that he's using. He sort of has in mind that the lights in the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, all those different things, even those words, um, variation, shadow, change. You may have a different translation, something like shifting shadow or shadow and turning or variableness, something like that. But he has in mind here that all of the lights in heaven that just change all the time, don't they? The constellations every night are in a slightly different position than they were the night before. Day is constantly turning into night, and night is constantly turning back into day. We have eclipses that take the light away from us. We have the, the solstices where days get longer and shorter throughout the year. Daylight savings time, which is Uh, a struggle at least one time every year, Uh, leap years, which just kind of throw off the calendar a little bit. It's 2024, heads up. 
The times and the seasons are just constantly shifting and turning and changing. It always keeps us on our toes. We can kind of predict them a little bit, but but we're just constantly adjusting. We're constantly sort of in this unstable sort of life. But God is not like that. God does not change. Actually, very similarly to what James said in verse 5, that God gives without reproach. He is not like the man who is tossed to and fro and goes back and forth. He's not unstable like the people, not unstable like the sky. He does not change and he cannot be changed. God never turns dark. He is reliable and he is unwavering in his goodness all the time in the same way yesterday and today and forever. And, verse 18, God has given you life. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is, this is birth language that James is talking about, just sort of like there was birth language earlier with, with desire and sin and death. God gives us a new birth through the good news of his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So do you, do, you, do you see a little bit, when we come to verse 18, how impossible our situations seem in verses 14 and 15? And now how God has done what is impossible for us. He's given us new life. So and the answer to Jeremiah 17, your heart is deceitful and wicked above all else, is Jeremiah 31. He gives you a new heart and a clean heart and a pure one. He gives you, in a sense, a, a new start. And, and really, that, that's the greatest gift of all, is that he cleanses you. He takes away the guilt, and he starts to take away the corruption We may not ever reach total sinlessness in this life. But once God has given you new life, you can choose good. You can choose to obey. You can choose to please him. You can choose to be faithful. You can start to kill and weaken sin. You are transformed and you're empowered to fight against it. You wouldn't have been able to say that before Christ. But once we've been saved, that's what God is doing. And, the very end of verse 18, God is doing even more. We are saved to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You could also sort of translate that as creation, the first fruits of his creation. We are born again. We are given new life. But we are just the start. God is doing more. He's saving more people. He's giving more people new life. He's sending out his gospel to even farther reaches of his creation. And he is working to the point of, again, Revelation 21, redeeming and regenerating everything in this creation that you can see. That's his ultimate goal. So do you see how God is working in awesome and good and beautiful plan in history, both in you 
as a person, as a child, and in the whole of his creation. If he has begun that work, why would he do anything to jeopardize it? Why would he not finish it? God is good. He's proven since the very beginning of creation itself that he is caring and loving and a rescuing kind of God. And so he is going to finish that work in you and in creation. So we can see, hopefully, how this this whole process of, of fighting off temptation in the midst of trials is really nothing more than, than just sort of a continuation of the same gospel story, right? James, James holds out this crown of life for us. And he says, it's impossible for you to get on your own, but God can do it in you. God can do it through you. The race of the Christian life is not a race that we start on our own. God is the one who saves us. And it's not a race that we finish on our own either. God continually has to be working in us. And when we finish that race, I hope all of us, as we start to to understand the depths of our sin and the heights of the gospel, I hope we can really start to long for that day when we don't have to fight our sin anymore. The day when we get to heaven will be a day where, where all corruption and crookedness will be gone. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, you will be made perfect. You're not going to ever have to worry again about being led astray. You're not going to have to worry about your own heart. You're not going to have to worry about making the wrong choice. You won't have to worry about being unfaithful ever again. You will be able to love your Savior with your whole entire heart every second for the rest of eternity. You'll be able to serve him with every faculty that you have, every thought, every desire, every action. You will be saved to sin no more. And until that day, we can be assured that the precious blood of the Lamb will never lose its power. So though we still fight and though we still battle, we know because of the blood of Jesus, there will never be condemnation for us. There will never be condemnation. And God will always give us the mercies that we need every morning to fight, to race, to keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is um, it's easy to read this text and to, to feel our sin. It's easy to feel our own corruption. Lord, it, is, it, is, it is easy for us to see that we are not what we should be. And yet, we give you the thanks and the praise that by your grace we are not what we once were. Lord, we do pray that as we keep going on fighting against temptation, we pray that as we um, 
endure trials and difficult things, that you would keep us alert, make us good, good self-examiners. We pray that you would keep temptation and all evil away from us. We pray that you would help us to know ourselves. We pray for more of your grace as well. We know that you, you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. So would you humble each one of us and give us what we need to fight every day. Help us to fight in our thoughts. Help us to fight in our desires, to fight in our actions. Help us to be quick to see when we're being baited. Help us to be quick to see when we're being enticed. Give us more mercy. Show us your love. Show us your goodness. Show us that you are preserving us from from the beginning of our lives all the way until the end of it. We do pray that you would be faithful as you have promised to finish the work in us that you have already started. When we cling to that, we cling to Christ. We don't cling to our own strength, but we cling to you. We pray all these things. In-